Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. I want to thank you for tuning in for another episode. Today's episode is with Eugene Trufkin. Eugene is, the, is an author. He's a personal trainer. He's an advocate for health. He has a very interesting background, how he got to where he is. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Eugene sheds light on, I think, some really important topics around food. I find as someone that is really a health enthusiast and realizing that food plays such a big role in that journey that it's kind of an uphill battle. There's a lot of forces at play that we have to be aware of. Otherwise, we could fall into traps where we are eating things that don't really serve our health very well or we are persuaded by maybe advertising that we think we're making a good decision with our food when there's some hidden pitfalls. So Eugene does an excellent job of shedding light on some of these topics and helping us with some ideas that when we're looking to apply better practices to our own lifestyle, it could be really useful. I hope you learn something of value and I hope you enjoy it. And thanks again for tuning in. Hello and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond, and I want to thank the listeners out there for joining me today for another episode. I'm really excited for today's guest. He is a Czech Institute health coach. He's a graduate from the University of California in Irvine, and he specializes in fat loss and operates the TrufkinAthletics.com website. He's also the author of the Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide. His name is Eugene Rufkin, and really uh, grateful that you joined us today. Eugene, please say hello to the Mindful Movement audience. No, thank you. Thank you, Raymond, for, or thank you, Les, for having me on your show. So I greatly appreciate it. So it seems like you have a, a lot of passions in life, and it seems like they revolve around, I guess, health and wellness in general. Um, how did you, maybe you could fill us in on kind of how you got to where you are today, and then maybe we'll kind of double click on some of these topics that you seem to have spent a lot of time learning about and practicing. 
Yeah, so I just kind of naturally uh, fell into the health and wellness field. I kind of spent a large portion of the beginning portion of my life growing up on an uh, off-grid biodynamic farm in Ukraine. So uh, for your listeners that don't know what biodynamic farming is, it's probably what they have like a mental image of when they think of farming. So they have like, you know, open pastures, you have like a bunch of animals running around outside and uh, like a a small family unit that's kind of sustaining itself off of this, uh, you know, this kind of farm. That's generally what, what biodynamic is. I mean, obviously there are various levels of integrity of biodynamic farming, but that's the general idea. So I grew up, uh, you know, eating food that we grew, uh, like not even knowing what synthetic biocides were and just being like very physically active during the day. So the whole entire like health and wellness thing just kind of fell into my lap on top of my dad uh, uh, was like a, like a very prominent wrestler in Bulgaria. Obviously back then it was still all the Soviet Union. So it's still all like one country. So he got me into working out and then just kind of understanding the importance of being like obviously mentally and physically healthy, <laughs> which is kind of a little bit rare to run into these days. But uh, so I just, I just liked it. It came naturally to me. And then also like I was surrounded by it. So it just kind of, it happened to work out. So that's great. So did you like work the farm when you were a kid? Yeah, so basically it wasn't like a commercial operation. It was just uh, the food that we grew for ourselves. I primarily uh, lived with my grandma and granddad while they raised me and then my parents were in college and they would come visit on the weekends occasionally. So that's that's kind of how I grew up and then, so. So how old were you when you came to the States then? Well, uh, after, Obviously, the Soviet Union collapsed, and then some trouble began began with Moldova and Ukraine. Uh, my parents kind of took off, and they moved to the states. Oh, give me one second. And they moved to the states, and I came here when I was around ten. Okay. And it sounds like you're in Texas now. And you mentioned before we hit record, you kind of bounce back and forth between Texas and California. Yep. So I, I work remotely, so I kind of like that setup. So basically I spend some of the year in Texas and then some of the year in, uh, in California. So. Gotcha. So I, I want to jump into this book, this anti-factory farm shopping guide. I know, um, you know, I'm a, a big proponent of people like playing a bigger role in their health journey. Mm-hmm. And yep. I've gone through a journey myself in that process and I've definitely learned that like how important food is in that equation. And I live in a house with six people and I'm responsible essentially for sourcing the food that we Mm -hmm. all eat. Okay. And through that process, like that's been really eye-opening process just to be responsible for that. And I mean, it's like a part-time job acquiring food and there's all kinds of potential obstacles and there's a lot of I guess somewhat hidden problems that you run into and also just a lot of misinformation because of you know whatever the health magazines are promoting that month because they need content or whatever or whatever fads are coming and going. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us a little bit about like what the anti-factory farm shopping guide is is about 
and you know how that came about why you felt the need to create that like what problem is that solving and um what's the basis of that that guide yeah so the book mainly focuses on people that are kind of already interested in maximizing their mental and physical health and i know like a lot of people for instance don't care like about their health as sad as it is they kind of just buy the cheapest food and they go after like the deal like whatever the deal is at the grocery store and uh for them it doesn't make a difference but for people that are even health conscious like yourself for example uh it's become honestly like i would say like almost impossible to source like high quality food in the us uh, and we'll kind of break down why that's become the case. And the book uh, focuses mainly on that because when, uh, for instance, I came here from, uh, from the USSR, from Ukraine, for example, uh, and the first time I stepped into a supermarket, I went back there many times, obviously, over the years uh, to help my grandma out on the farm. But when the first time I stepped in the supermarket, I just, for example, thought, you know, all this stuff at Costco was grown you know, biodynamically, like very organically. I didn't even know like what synthetic biocides were, beta agonists or antibiotics or steroids or genetically modified ingredients or like the myriad of other chemicals used in agriculture. So I just thought everyone was farming the way we farmed on that off-grid biodynamic farm. So when I saw like 50 eggs for $1.50 at Costco, I'm like, man, this is like why us is such a powerhouse you know this is why everyone <laughs> wants to come here i mean if they're able to have like 50 eggs that are pasture raised and fed a species specific diet and in the open sun all day for this price like no one's going to compete with this you know and the years went on and on and basically i think about like four years ago at this point i ran into um, a video on youtube titled uh, nutrition the dirt facts and it was presented by paul check I'm pretty sure you're familiar with him. Probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with him as well. I don't know if they are actually, but for the listeners out there, uh, Paul Check is just an outstanding leader in the, I guess, holistic wellness field. And I definitely encourage listeners to, to explore his work. I've never been disappointed from listening to him. I always take something away. It's useful. And um, I mean, I'm grateful that he exists on the planet spreading the, the knowledge that he has. But uh, so I don't know if our audience actually okay. is um, in tune with them. But uh, yeah, yeah so, go, go on. Yeah, just like yourself, he played a big role in accelerating my pro In fact, like I probably wouldn't have ever even written this book if I wouldn't have run into that video. But basically, your audience can check it out. It's a very long, uh, it's a very long presentation. But he talks about the contrast differences between the factory farmer industrial agricultural model and uh, primarily biodynamic farming. That's what he was comparing it to in the presentation. And at that point, uh, I kind of like woke up from the matrix. So I'm like, oh man, there, there seems to be something dramatically different from the way <clears throat> the, the bulk majority of food at like Costco, for example, is produced versus how we produced it on that small self-sustaining uh, like biodynamic farm in Ukraine. And honestly, at that point, that's where all the confusion began. And I thought this would be literally like a two-week project, but it's turned into like a multiple-year project. And I'm still learning the ins and outs even to this day. So, <clears throat> for example, let's presume one of your listeners, they wanted to transform their health 
obviously there's a myriad of things that a person needs to do to really optimize their physical and mental health. But nutrition is always going to be one of those main pillars. So to improve that part of their health, they hire like a registered dietitian. And for example, that dietitian tells them something as honest as like, oh, make sure among a few things, make sure you include a lot more like grass-fed beef in, in your diet, which is fair enough. You know, that's good advice. Okay, grass-fed, that must be healthy, must be raised on pasture, et cetera, et cetera. But let's say this average, average person that's looking to optimize their health, remember they have a full-time job as well, so they don't have 20 hours a week to invest in education, going on farms, et cetera, et cetera. So to economize and to do something they're already familiar with, they go to the grocery store. This is like 99% of people will do this. They go to the grocery store and they see the grass-fed beef label, which you can find in most grocery stores these days, and they kind of buy that product. But let's go ahead and, and break down what grass-fed even means in the U.S. And before we do that, it's important for your listener to know that the husbandry practices of cattle, like all cattle are grass-fed. And that's kind of important to understand. All cattle are raised on pasture for a large portion of their, uh, of their life. It, of course, varies from operation to operation, depending on how long they're going to keep them on pasture. But basically what happens, for example, in a typical operation, they would keep them on pasture for about 80% of their life where they're eating a species-specific diet. So a species-specific diet for cattle is going to be that of a, of a herbivore. They're eating grass and like other forage. They could be supplemented with alfalfa possibly. And basically 99% of those cattle are then for the finishing portion of their life, meaning a few months before they go to the processing plant or the slaughter facility, are sent to a feedlot where they're fed uh, nothing but grains. And a lot of people know that aspect. And obviously when you feed a non-species specific diet to like a herbivore, which is that of grains instead of grass, it kind of, uh, among a, a lot of things that happens in the nutritional profile of the meat, but one of the more prominent ones is it kind of displaces the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. So for example, I volunteered to learn about raising cattle. I volunteered at a grass-fed operation in Orange County for a while, uh, fivebarbeef.com. When they did a meat analysis of their meat, the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio is like 1.5 to 1.8 omega-3 to like one omega-6. But when you finish cattle on grain, what happens is it typically shoots the omega-6 way up. So based in relation to omega-3. So omega-3 would be one, and then omega-6 would be about eight to 10. So you can see the, the, the contrast there between grass-fed and grain-finished uh, beef. And are they doing uh, that just to enhance the flavor profile of that beef? It could be, uh, it could be the flavor profile. Some people like uh, grain finished beef more. Some people like grass fed beef more. It's very kind of like subjective in terms of like what kind of flavor you're looking for. Uh, but one of, the, one of the biggest reasons is actually because it's a pound per pound industry. And obviously the more pounds your animal weighs, the more money you're gonna make as a rancher or like as a feedlot operator, for example, because the cattle gets, uh, they kind of move hand to hand. There's someone that raises the cattle, then there's someone that raises them on pasture, and then there's a finishing like feedlot rancher. So they kind of get switched up from hand to hand. Sorry, this thing's coming up. I should have turned on, turned off uh, the notification things. 
but basically, um, so for your listeners that don't know the difference between the omega-3 and omega-6, in short, omega-3 is like an anti-inflammatory and omega-6 is a pro-inflammatory. So if they kind of look up the inflammation theory of disease, they'll see that uh, like 98 plus percent of all disease arises from low-grade chronic inflammation in the body. So obviously a myriad of variables increase your inflammation in the body, but one of them being primarily nutrition. And um, so, so once again, this person is going to the grocery store, they're looking to optimize their health, they're seeing that grass-fed label, and most likely it's, it's not grass-fed not grass-fed beef and sometimes so in the store if it says grass-fed all that means is the majority of that cattle's life has been grass-fed but it could still it could still have that grain fit they don't have to disclose the grain finishing component yeah so here's the thing basically the grass-fed label claim in the u.s is not regulated by anyone Really? So all you have to do, all you have to do to basically claim grass-fed is just say you're grass-fed, turn in some paperwork. No one does any on-site inspections whatsoever, and that's that. So it's basically the equivalent of someone saying like, "Oh, I just graduated from this university and I have this degree," and no one's going to check if that's the case, you know. So that's how it works. And then to kind of make things a little bit more complicated, uh, the U.S. actually imports like ninety percent of its grass-fed beef from like overseas the grass-fed beef that they sell with that grass-fed label from overseas. So uh, from Latin American countries, from Australia, at the end of the day, you don't know where it's coming from. A lot of times you'll see product of the USA, <clears throat> but what product of the USA label really means is that, uh, for example, legally, I could actually import a carcass from Mexico, process it in California into packages, and that's still able to be legally claimed as product of the USA. Really, that does so. Just to deceiving. give, it's totally deceiving. I think like seven years ago, it wasn't the case. But then these processing companies, uh, you know, these huge corporations, obviously lobbied the government to change the laws on that. And now it's like, if you see product of the of the USA, all that really could mean is that it was simply just processed in the USA. But the animal could have been grown in like Brazil or like Mexico, even slaughtered there. And then is just, it possible that? Let's say you buy meat. I know one of the um, websites that I buy meat from, the cattle they say, I think does come from Australia. And it does say grass fed. I mean, is it possible that their requirements there are stricter than here and it's still better off, even though, you know, it's going through that transition from that other country and I'm buying it from a, a company in the United States. Yeah. Well, if their practices are better than ours, can't that be, uh, I guess, a net gain from from that, uh, you know, idea of purchasing something that comes from far away? Yeah, I guess with the Australian example, if you get it from there, I would say it's a it's a pretty good bet. It's grass fed because their uh, their grain industry isn't subsidized by the tax by the taxpayer. So the majority of their actual uh, beef production comes from grass fed operations. But the thing is, it's like you actually do the research, but a lot of people would just look at the product of the USA label and they just presume it was grown, harvested, and actually processed in the USA. It's, so that's one of the things. I guess it, I, I definitely purchased, I'm sorry to cut you off there. I definitely purchased yeah. the grass fed stuff 
from the local grocery store. I think it's a Harris Teeter that's like right near our house. And I can't speak to like the ingredient, you know, I've never had this stuff tested, but it definitely doesn't taste the same as the grass fed stuff I get that, you know, comes from Australia or from some of these like specialty sites or um, a farm that I get from Virginia that's like, kind of like a mawpaw farm. They harvested, you know, like a dozen animals a year. <laughs> and, you know, they know they're very, like I would say spiritual about how, you know, those cattle are treated and how they live. And there's definitely a difference, but you're right. Like on the label, it just says grass fed, but when you taste it, you're like, well, it definitely doesn't taste anything close to this other stuff. And it's obviously it's cheaper. So I would assume that has something to do with it, but it's disturbing that the labeling could be so, I guess, misleading. Yeah. And then also like sometimes even, um, and I'll offer easy solutions too. I'm not going to be just whining and complaining about different problems. Uh, at the end of the podcast, we'll offer like very, very easy and simple solutions uh, because anyone can complain, but then not many people can come up with easy applicable solutions to the average person, but we'll make sure to cover that. Okay. Uh, it also gets even, even more confusing. So for example, like sometimes people, I used to do grocery store tours, often teaching people food production practices and how to read past the labels, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes people would say like, oh, but it says, uh, it says grass fed and grass finished on the package, you know? So what happens is basically uh, I could be a rancher. I can feed the cattle grass for like nine, 10 months, put them on grain for like two, three months, finish them for a week of grass and still kind of like, once again, label it grass fed and grass finished. You have to remember also at the supermarket, they're under like a lot of pressure by the supermarket to supply a predictable quantity of meat on a yearly basis so that the supermarket can have those shelved on a predictable basis because that's what the consumer demands. But the thing is, if you ever like volunteer at a pasture raise, like legitimate 100% grass fed cattle operation, the supply is unpredictable. Some years you'll get X amount of pounds, some years because, you know, the weather and the grass didn't grow as much or something like that, you'll get a lot less pounds. And it's just like a very unpredictable supply. So what ranchers typically do because they want to keep these contracts, because remember, it's, it's, it's their, you know, well-being and finances on the line if they lose these contracts with the grocery stores is they'll kind of throw in some grains here and there to offset the difference of the pounds they couldn't make up that the grocery store needs on a predictable basis. So that's, that's a, I would say like a, a pretty common practice. And because, <clears throat> and because no one is really doing like any onsite inspections with the grass fed label claim, like no one's gonna, no one's gonna really check. And um, that's just, that's just how it is. And sometimes you'll see like the 100% grass fed label. And I actually had this happen to me. I was going to the grocery store for a long time and buying uh, beef that was 100% grass fed. It had that label on the package. And just one day I was like, I was bored and I gave the company a call and they're all honest. And they're like, yeah, we, uh, we feed them. They are 100% grass fed, but what happens is we send them to a feedlot during the fin finishing phase and feed them uh, grass pellets. Yeah, so once again, but on the picture, it had like just cattle roaming the pasture 24 seven. And if I would have never, 
never called them or the average consumer will never call them. They'll just presume that that's just how the operation goes. I'm not saying their nutritional profile is going to be much different if you feed them grass pellets towards the finishing phase versus just leaving them on pasture or feeding them alfalfa. But then you have to take into consideration, you know, the quality of the pellets, you know, how are they processed, the amount of concentrated trace amounts of various toxins in those pellets, et cetera, that build up into the animal tissue. Because you have to remember for one pound of weight gain on a grass-fed animal, they need to eat like about like 120 to 150 pounds of grass. Oh, wow. So you can imagine if that grass was grown with any kind of you know, synthetic fertilizer or whatever, that concentration of toxicity builds up in the animal quite a bit. And then obviously, if you're, for instance, an athlete, you're going to be eating quite a bit of that meat on a consistent basis. So the toxic load is going to then build up in your body. Another issue with uh, even, going be even going beyond the species-specific diet of the animal, we're just talking about whether they're fed grass or not grass, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, another thing to consider is like when an animal is put in a concentrated feeding environment, you typically have three things that happen in that environment that increases the inflammation of the animal. So one, you have overcrowding. And obviously that's a given. It's stressful to the animal being shoulder to shoulder. You could just picture yourself being stuck in a warehouse with like 200 people and there's no bathroom, no shower, no me time, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to increase inflammation in the animal. Then you have a lot of, you know, bacteria buildup. So the immune system has to be on overdrive to constantly fight off these pathogens. That's going to increase the inflammation. Why is and there then, a bacteria buildup just from being in a feedlot? <clears throat> Do you know? Yeah. So uh, basically on pasture, how it works is like the animals would poop on, let's say, like one acre of land for a while. Then the, then the rancher would move them to another acre, then move them again. Oh, they're so they're not, not moving them. Okay. Yeah. So when they're in a concentrated feeding environment, they're just in one, let's say like warehouse, for example, just to make the vision simple gotcha. uh, or a pen, which is what they do with cattle. And they're not moving. They're just stuck there. They're pooping there. They're laying in their own poop. Uh, there are many other animals pooping there as well. And they all come from different operations. So then you have different bacteria profiles that the animal might, that the animal's immune system might not be familiar with, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then also they're given vaccines and I don't know the names of all the vaccines, but certain vaccines cause chronic inflammation in their body as well. And when you get these three things combined into one formula and environment, which is very typical in a factory farmed environment, what happens is the animal's liver produces too much uh, serum amyloid A proteins. And I got this and I was introduced to this topic by uh, Terry Cochran, uh, the author of Wildetarian Diet. Oh, yeah, I've listened to her. Yeah. yeah, so very knowledgeable person. And I never knew about like AA amyloids before running into her work. And uh, basically what happens is the liver produces too much serum amyloid A proteins, uh, which in short are soluble and they break down in the body in small to moderate amounts. But when it's released chronically, like it is because of those three variables we mentioned, uh, what happens is certain portions of those S, uh, SAA proteins break up into amyloid A proteins, which are not soluble. And they begin to form as plaque around the organ tissue of the animal and also to a smaller extent in the muscle tissue of the animal. So there isn't any conclusive 
human feeding studies, for example, but you'll find numerous mice feeding studies on pubmed.gov that show that mice fed AA amyloids also develop those plaques in their organ tissue and muscle tissue as well. And the problem with AA amyloids is like, for example, the symptoms could vary. Uh, it could be something as extreme as like Alzheimer's to something like type two diabetes or even gut issues or joint issues, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you're also kind of taking a risk by eating large amounts of that meat in the sense that those AA amyloid plaques can be then building up in your organs. And obviously if uh, it could attack one organ or it could, attack, could be systemic and attack multiple organs. And then you have, you know, the negative health effects of whatever. Now, if you're in a that. bind and you have a short-term exposure to that, let's say, you know, you're out of town and you're at a social event at a restaurant and obviously they're not going to source their food with the same um, like intention or based on your personal values, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that a big deal if it's, uh, you know, once in a while exposure to that? Is our, do you think our bodies could just kind of handle that if we're, you know, generally healthy, we're resilient enough to deal with that? What, what did you call the protein? AA? Uh, AA amyloidosis. That's what it's kind of referred okay. to. Yeah. Can you say yeah, it again? So amyloid? AA, uh, they're called like AA amyloids AA or AA amyloidosis, uh, one okay. or the other. Um, you know, that's a good question. I think in my opinion, uh, I haven't been able to personally find any human feeding studies once again, but there are okay. countless like mice feeding studies that show that does, it does transition into the organ tissue of the mice when fed these AA amyloid tainted meats. So it's a risk that the consumer has to take, uh, these plaques just build up and they don't go anywhere over time. I think if anything, you always have to perceive those things as your overall toxic load. You know, like um, how much total toxicity are you getting exposed to on a daily basis? Like the average newborn, the average newborn born in like a urban environment. Um, I got this from uh, Andre Lou, the myth of safe pesticides from his book there has, is born with about like 200 trace amounts of 200 different chemicals in their bloodstream is re already. So even mean you are health conscious, I'm sure there's always like some things you can improve on, et cetera, et cetera. We're like very health conscious. And I'm sure if we had even our blood taken, there would be probably like a hundred trace amounts of a hundred plus chemicals, even in our bloodstream. So it's your overall, it's your overall toxic load or the burden that your immune system has to put up with on a daily basis. And I would say if you include that meat in your diet, it's just like one more thing that your body has to fight off. And since there's no conclusive studies done on the effects of it, uh, just remember how long it took people to prove that smoking was bad for you, you know? All right. So it's like, uh, as Plus my there's probably a lot of variability. I mean, I remember I've done a bunch of genetic work and I know a lot of the genes that were tested were related or relevant to different detox pathways. And like probably uh, my guess is a thousand years ago before there were any like man-made chemicals, it probably didn't matter that much how good your like detox related genes were because the overall exposure was mm -hmm. something that we were used to. And, you know, we probably developed our detox pathways based on that exposure. But now that they've ramped up so much over the last hundred to 200 years, we really haven't had the time as a species 
to respond to that environmental stress like that mm -hmm. could probably, that could maybe who knows it could take 10,000 generations so like those genes really come into play so some people might hit the gene lottery where you know they could handle more of those environmental toxins and their bodies generally better getting rid of them where some a lot of people can't and those you know i think those people that can't make up a pretty sizable percentage of the population. I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of people out there that are sick and they don't know why. And mm -hmm. at the source of that sickness is some type of toxicity insult, whether you know it's coming from the food or from their environment or some combination. I, I feel like uh, you know being aware of that has to be, I guess, part of your lifestyle if you're trying to optimize your your health potential yeah so um you're right i mean you, any one of your listeners can take take me up on this and just kind of what you hinted at and they can step outside like pretty much anywhere in america today and like nine out of ten people you run into are are full of obesity and disease are full of like mental and uh mental and physical pain obviously there's like a tremendous amount myriad of variables that go into optimizing your mental and physical health but nutrition is always going to be one of those main staples. It's one of those like primary things that you you definitely have to have a foundation for to 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 have as a building block for the rest of your for the rest of your mental and, and physical health. And then another thing is like vaccines. This you know, and I'm not like anti-vaccines, but just to kind of uh, shadow like an example, like vaccines, savings programs, etc., limited food supply. It's like. Look at the average hunter and gatherer. They didn't have a gym membership. They didn't have a health plan. They didn't have a, like a Bally's membership. Uh, you know, they didn't. They didn't have all these like security things. And they're all like jacked all year round. They didn't have a nutritionist, a life coach, right. a spiritual coach, and they're like all jacked. Hunting mammoths with like a spear. They're like the animals like thirty times your size and like super muscular and able to take it down. And. Um, and they, they lived also to an older age. They lived to 50 and 60 once you take out child mortality as well and like thrived to that age, you know? Like these days, um, I was like, uh, I did fat loss lecturing at, uh, you know, army bases for a while. And even like a lot of the, the people in the military, like 70% of them, I'd say, I remember talking to the master sergeant one time and he's like, oh, the average soldier can't even do 20 pushups. You know, so Ooh, really? that's, that's like the front line. That's like the front line guys. So you can imagine like what a civilian, the, the state of a civilian would be. And though they have these vaccines and all these medicines and all these advanced doctors and these gym memberships, et cetera, et cetera. And like, dude, this hunter gatherer guy <laughs> didn't even have an education. You know, he's like jacked, uh, like mentally fit as well to be able to sustain the harshness of reality back then. Yeah. When uh, you look cetera, at images, I'm sorry. Uh, when you look at images from people from way back in the day, yeah, they're they're all ripped, men, women, kids. It's like I think we're supposed to look like that, <laughs> and we in, in this day and age we confuse like what's common with normal. Like you know, in the I've worked in the gym environment for quite some time, and you know when you're having like an initial session with somebody and you're going over, you know, they're listing, you're going over like their health history. And they're checking off all the things that are wrong, which are basically like a, a list of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
it's amazing. It's interesting the perspective people have on like 30 or 40 excess pounds of fat around their midsection. And they think because it's common that it's okay or like it's normal. Mm -hmm. Those are two like very different ideas. What's common. I mean, right now you're right. Like our, we have all this fancy medicine, but obviously it's failing us for, you know, a, a package of reasons and people are clearly not thriving and you look around and, and you see it, you could definitely see the obesity numbers and, um, it's become so common though, that mm-hmm. sometimes I think people have lost the framework to ask the questions of, you know, what should it be or how do I get better? Is it, cause there is, they don't understand what normal is there. We're so detached from normal because we see what's common. It, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely been normalized in society for sure, you know, because they might be overweight, but then everyone else in their office is like even more overweight, you know? Right. So reference to them, they're like, oh, I'm doing just fine. Although the guy's like 35 and on two prescription medications and like 30% body fat and already has like decaying knees, you know, can't even like work out, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, oh, but it's okay. It's part of the aging process. Yeah. I mean, I used to be pretty overweight. I was about 75, 80 pounds heavier than I'm now. And, um, like, I didn't, I didn't know anything was wrong. Like I felt fine. It's like, you don't even know. So you lose it. And you're like, Oh man, I didn't, I didn't realize what good felt like because it was normal. Like whatever I was at my level of uh, lack of health was normal to me. So Mm -hmm. it's like, you don't have a reference point. Yeah. And then there's actually there is actually a good uh, product that Paul Check has. It's called like one, two, three, overcoming obesity addic- addiction and disease. I think that's the name of it. It's been a few years since I watched it, uh, but basically it kind of like outlines the etiology tree of, let's say like we we're talking about like fat gain primarily here. So it's kind of like, let's say you have like you, fat gain. I mean, it's important for pe- people to see it as a standalone issue, but it's important to see it as like a symptom, you know, like a right. symptom of, like poor lifestyle and nutritional choices. But then it goes like in the program, it goes like a lot deeper than that. So it goes like, okay, so what's a symptom? Like, why would a person do this like self-abuse to themselves? You know, like why would they eat bad food, you know, look the way they not want to look and just purposely continue to do this to themselves? And it goes like, okay, well, they have a mindset that doesn't facilitate health conscious choices, obviously. And that leads them to, you know, not have good sleeping schedules, work too many hours, et cetera, or eat poor food, et cetera, et cetera, what leads to fat gain. And then you go like, okay, so why, why does a person have these, uh, this like unhealth, unhealth, uh, unhealthy thought patterns that lead to poor lifestyle and nutrition choices, which lead to the fat gain. And it usually kind of goes down, my interpretation of his work is usually goes down to uh, three variables and then a fourth one we kind of already talked about, we kind of, excuse me, we kind of already talked about together, but basically one of them he mentions is there's most always a person with weight challenges, most always has a presence of like a love hate relationship in their life. Uh, Like a, there could be, there could be a myriad of, uh, of these love hate relationships. One of the common ones is like, I was married, for this person for 10 years, I kind of loved them initially, but now we kind of drifted apart our separate ways, but I'm staying with them. 
because of like loyalty reasons, religious reasons, because of kids, finance, whatever. It could be like a, whatever story you attach to it. And this creates like, a, like an insidious stress in the person's body. And then obviously they feel like they don't have control or uh, they don't have control over the situation in the sense they're like, they're just being fake. You know, they're showing up to this relationship, pretending to love the person, but they clearly don't anymore, or though they might have in the past. And this creates like uneasiness in the central nervous system. And the person typically seeks out food to gain this unconditional love and power too, because food, it gives you unconditional love. It accepts you for who you are. And then you also have that power aspect, which you don't have in the relationship because you don't have the power to end the relationship, or at least you don't perceive like you do. And uh, then the person has the power to pick that food up, that love, be granted the love when they want it, and also put the food away. You know, So they have that power aspect plus the unconditional love aspect, which food provides. And then another, another common theme is there's typically a story gap. So a person doesn't feel safe uh, being who they want to be in the real world. So once again, there could be a myriad of stories here, but uh, like a very simple one is like, I want to be like a, an artist, but I don't feel financially safe pursuing that path in the real world. I don't feel like I'm going to be granted the the finances, like I want to actually live the lifestyle I want. So because of that, I might go hungry, you know, I might be homeless, and that's going to not be safe for me. So I'm going to be a lawyer, which is more established field and gives me a more guaranteed pay, although it's a co contrasted difference from being an artist, for example, this might be okay for a few years, but eventually it catches on to the person and they get into these cycles of like, oh, I wish I could be painting, but now I have to do eight hours of these reports, which I don't want to do reports on. Then they kind of grow disgruntled to the work. And then sometimes their coworkers fall behind on projects and then they have to do it for them. Now they get disgruntled to the coworkers. You know what I mean? It creates this like vicious cycle. And basically, once again, what do they do? They seek out food because food provides that comfort, that love that accepts you for who you are. It gives you love. And then it provides that control, which you don't have because this guy, for example, in our example, wants to be an artist, but he feels he doesn't have like the, the, the business skills or the marketing skills to succeed as an artist financially. So he feels he doesn't have control, but he has control over this food. You know, he has the control to pick it up, eat it when he wants to, and then put it away. So that's another very common, very, very common theme. And most of the, most of the time you have the bulk majority of citizens experiencing both of those. They're going to a job they don't like, and then they're coming home to a relationship they don't like to be in as well. And can you see why the obesity epidemic is getting worse and worse and worse? Although like our understanding of nutrition lifestyle choices, exercise science has improved greatly, yeah, but the symptoms just get worse and worse, okay? So clearly the, the, the country doesn't need more information, more studies, they just need to be more in tune with their kind of core values and that alone will solve a tremendous amount of health problems that people are experiencing. And then the third one, just the person feels empty inside, no matter what they do. It's one of those, like the ladder, no matter how high you're, you're climbing is leaned against the wrong wall or lean against the wrong building, you know? So it's like the more you achieve, the more empty you feel uh, because there hasn't been that deep soul searching to even find out what your core values are, who you are, uh, et cetera, et cetera, usually just kind of fall into these social programming paradigms, you know, like, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
And then the fourth one we already covered, obviously disease has been normalized. So it's like, it's, it's okay to be obese. It's okay to have, to be on four different prescription medications, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, right. and basically then, then check breaks down to, oh, well, people fall into those paradigms because there's a, there's basically a disconnect in their core values. And then if you go even deeper than that, you get into Stefan, uh, Stefan Walensky's work of like quantum psychology, then you have like the false core, false self. So obviously like my interpretation of it is, for example, you have thoughts, you know, they're usually never actually a stream, although you might kind of perceive it that way. Uh, it's usually a thought and then there's space, you know, like spaciousness and then another thought pops up. And then there's like space in between all these thoughts. And depending on how you interpret that spaciousness, like one example would be like, let's say you're sitting around at home. You're like now, oh, like um, you, you have this sense of spaciousness. And because of your childhood upbringing, you interpret that spaciousness, let's say in this example, as emptiness. You know, then you interpret that emptiness as inadequacy. You're like, oh, I'm being a loser. I'm not maximizing my day, you know? And then what do you typically do? So that would be like your, your false core. So what do you typically do then? You overcompensate by trying to be overly adequate, you know, but initially like you could have interpreted that spaciousness as literally anything, but you decided to interpret it as inadequacy. And then you based your whole entire personality off that interpretation, which leads to a disconnect in your core values, which leads you into poor relationship choices, poor employment choices, which leads to obviously not being very happy, which leads to poor lifestyle choices, which leads to poor nutrition choices, which leads to fat gain. So it's kind of like, there's your tree, like right there. So it's, yeah. it's laid out pretty well just by both of these guys, like Paul Cech and Stefan Walensky. Yeah, I know it's off a, topic from where we started. No, it's great, man. Uh, that's a terrific uh, example. I love the way you interpret their message. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you always, to really make meaningful change, you have to start at, you know, kind of a top-down value, you know, value system first. Like, I, I always refer to it as the direction in which your decisions point. Like, set mm -hmm. your value, set, set why you're doing anything. And then the decisions like the step to take right now today how to spend the minutes of your day will be a lot clearer because you could be a little bit more objective of you know does it aim in this direction or am i just doing this thing and then just embrace that step and not being attached to that value just always being in the process of evaluating like am I still aligned with that value? Am I pointed in this direction? Mm -hmm. So like you might not get to the top of the mountain. It doesn't really matter. It's, you know, are you, are you walking in the right direction? And if there's something about knowing that the decision that you make today, that it really aligns with what you've declared and what you've identified as the value that, that you are putting on the top there, that, it, it makes it not just easier to not have like a conflict in your mind about, oh, should I eat this? I want this. I know it's not good for me. Like those conflicts become a little bit dissolved and you become more matter of fact with your decisions. But there's something about knowing that what you do aligns with what you've identified as what's most important to you that allows for the joy of the activity or the experience, whatever you're doing, the to just like emerge, it's more mm -hmm. like 
from within. Like if you know you're like, I know like in the gym environment, a lot of people might have a, a favorite exercise or like they don't like doing, they don't do these cause they don't like them or they like these. So they do a lot of them. And I feel like that mindset gets in people's way a lot. Whereas if what you're doing, you know, aligns with what you've already identified as, you know, what's important to you, then you just do the thing because you know that aligns. And then with practice over time, the joy of that thing, the likingness of it, or the love of it, it just kind of emerges. And then, you know, whatever that task is becomes a sanctuary. Like I know when I exercise now, I just work on the thing that I have identified the quality that day that I'm focused on. Cause I know I want that quality in my long-term plan. And mm-hmm. as I practice it, it just becomes fun because I know like I'm going this direction. And it doesn't mean you don't take steps off the path sometimes intentionally and sometimes not. And, um, and you just notice, you know, you want to be aware like, Oh, I'm off course here. That's okay. I'm just going to, my next step is going to be back on course. But um, it, it really makes things easier as far as how you putting together like your lifestyle when you know that everything's kind of aimed in the direction of something that, you know, is really at the top of your, I guess, your, your value pyramid or whatever. Let's get into a little bit of like you, you brought up some really good points about with the food thing, like how mm-hmm. hard it like the problems that that we might be unaware of, especially obviously with labeling and, and just the use of all the crap that the food industry is allowed to use for some reason. Um, like what's some of the solutions? Like what, what do you do or what do you recommend to people if they are health minded, they want, and they want to be more intention Mm -hmm. um, based with their food sources and they don't really know how to, or, or where to go for it. Yeah, so um, we talked a lot about meat products. I'll give some good resources for that. We can cover like crops as well, because I'm pretty sure you have some vegetarian listeners or probably most are omnivores, so they eat vegetables as well, because there's an equal amount of deception there as well. Um, Because sometimes maybe your listeners are like, oh, I don't eat meat anyway, so it doesn't matter. So that's one of the reasons I don't eat meat because it's gotten that confusing. But the same level of confusion occurs in, like vegetable and fruit production as well, just so your listener knows that also. But basically for, um, they can do a couple of things. Uh, if the person is really passionate about it and really into it like I am, they can just go volunteer at a lot of these operations. So I volunteered at uh, fivebarbeef.com. Um, They're in Orange County, uh, like Foothill Ranch area. And basically he, um, his meat is pretty much like wild, wild cattle. So for example, he's been Frank Fitzpatrick. He's been doing it for like 40 years. Uh, he's had a herd for that long. And basically uh, he doesn't use any vaccines, doesn't use any medicines, doesn't clip his bulls, doesn't dehorn his cattle or any of that. He just leaves them out there and basically lets nature sort them out. So the ones over the decades that were able to thrive in that environment, continue to survive and have kids that are able to thrive in that environment. And uh, the only thing we really did was just rotate them onto fresh pasture occasionally. So that way the land is managed a little bit better. Uh, so they can, they can do that. I volunteered at happy-eggs. 
uh, com. They're like the the only operation I can find that's corn and soy free and certified organic and all their hens are raised on pasture, like the typical free range egg you get at the supermarket, probably each hen has maybe like 1.5 to two square foot of space per hen, where their operation is about like 250 square foot of space per hen. It's a big difference. Yeah, huge difference. Industry, yeah, industry free range is, is tricky too with the poultry because uh, a lot of times people see that image like free range they think once again these huge mountains and sun shining everywhere in reality you get like a huge warehouse with about like forty thousand hens in there and then you get like a small little concrete patio where they get to roam where they have access to roam outside it doesn't necessarily mean they actually go outside and then obviously you run into the same grain problem chickens are omnivores they're not supposed to be vegetarian fed you see that on the label very often, like yeah, vegetarian. The, the egg category, the, the egg section in a grocery store has become so freaking confusing. There's way too many options. And you know, you know that, I don't even know, I don't know what's, I buy the most expensive ones, assuming it's healthiest, but I, 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 I believe that chickens are probably not, I mean, I know that you're not just what you eat, you're what you eat, ate and- yeah. Like it's really unclear of like what a chicken is actually supposed to eat for that to be an optimal food source for us. But when you go in the store, it's so much worse because it's there's got to be like six or seven different types yeah. of eggs now yeah. that you can get. Yeah. Can you like um, detail yeah. some of those and what they mean for us and like which ones we should be looking for? Yeah, and that's funny that you asked about eggs because most hosts don't even cover that topic, but that's actually how my journey began. All I wanted was just healthy eggs. And I'm like, man, this is going to take like a week. I'm going to do some research and I'm going to find out which ones are the healthiest and just buy those. And like four years later, I'm, I'm still trying to find them. You know? <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah, the egg category especially is like super confusing. You have the no label, then you have the cage free, then you have the free range, then you have the pasture raised. Then you have the non-GMO certified, then you have the USDA organic certified, then you have maybe a few different other random certifications that are out there, some come and go. Uh, yeah, and it's very confusing. So, And then the vegetarian fed, as you mentioned. Yeah. And so, I know, yeah. like, I, we recently got chickens during the pandemic. We wanted to okay. start to, like, get a little more connected with our food. We got a chicken coop and... They clearly like worms. It's probably yeah. their food of choice. So yeah, it's definitely not what I want to. They, they know what they want, and like, if you pull a worm out, they flock over and they beg for it. And um, yeah, they might even take your finger off at the same time. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think uh, they're supposed to eat those. Yeah. So chickens—they're omnivores. They're not vegetarians. So uh, here's here's the trickery. Like you'll see, the best you're going to get most likely at the supermarket is. Uh, free range organic. Uh, so that sounds, that sounds really good. That sounds very marketable, but let's even break down what free range is. We talked about the living standards. So you have that confinement. They have a small little concrete patio where they get to roam outside. But really, if you go to any of these operations and I've been to a few, uh, you have maybe like 50 chickens outside in the small little concrete patio. And then the rest of the couple thousand are, are inside constantly. They never even wander outside because Usually the openings are very small and there's typically, it's very dark in this, in this warehouse. And there's typically like a lot of light that comes through. 
And they're kind of like afraid of that light. So they just kind of stay inside and in their little kind of coop with all their friends because they're kind of afraid to venture out. So they don't go outside. So you run into, once, once again, once again, when you have a lot of that confinement, you run into that AA amyloid buildup we talked about. But more importantly, when you don't take the animal to the food, meaning you don't rotate them onto fresh pasture, you have to bring the food to the animal. And probably 80% of the cost of um, an egg operation or a meat operation comes from just feeding the animal. And what's the cheapest thing to feed the animal to get them to grow like very, very quickly or produce a lot more eggs? Uh, grains, so primarily corn and soy because it's heavily subsidized by the taxpayer. And we'll talk about why organic tends to be a little bit more expensive than factory farm food on the label. But in reality, it's about, uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later, but not to diverge too much from the vegetarian fed. So when you see free range at the top and then you see vegetarian fed and probably the subtitle somewhere on the label, they're telling you it's a, it's a confined operation. Because if a chicken, if a hen was roaming outside they would be eating bugs and worms and other insects, and they wouldn't be able to be classified as vegetarian fed. So you can see they're actually like telling you the truth, but it's kind of spinned in a very deceptive way that the average consumer would never be able to, even they would, it would even fly under their radar. They wouldn't even question it because combined with all these Netflix documentaries showing like all these vegetarian uh, diets, and I'm sure some of them are healthy, but probably just like in the carnivore community, some maybe could thrive on that, but most are just still continue to be very unhealthy. Same with the vegetarian diet, maybe some could thrive on it, but most are probably not gonna be that healthy on it long-term. Uh, but the thing is, it's like hens, they're not vegetarians, they're omnivores. And when you feed them nothing but grains, you run into the same, uh, same issues we talked about with the cattle. The omega-6 goes way up in relation to omega-3 because the LA, the, the omega-6 LA is found in the seed of the grain. And when it's consumed by the animal, it's converted into- linoleic acid? Yeah, lin I always have trouble pronouncing these, so I just do the abbreviations, linoleic acid. And then it's converted into AA, arachidonic acid, after it's digested by the animal and deposited as that in the animal's fat tissue, for example. And that's a, that's a very inflammatory omega-6. So even these, even a lot of the people I would say, even on the carnivore diet, they're eating these factory farm meats. Um, they're still getting a lot of these, uh, these omega-6s that they're trying to get rid of by eliminating a lot of food groups just in their meat alone, because you get a lot of that in the fat deposit of the meat. If you're buying the, the animals that aren't fed a species specific diet and they're reliant on grain feeding. Gotcha. Uh, so it's confusing. Yeah, and then um, so free-range so, organic is the ideal option if you're in the egg section, but it's still misleading. Really, the best option is having a neighbor that has a bunch of chickens that let them just roam all day, and then being nice to that neighbor so they give you some eggs. Yeah, so they can check out. Um, I don't know if it's going to be in their area, but definitely if you're in the Southern California area, you could check out happy-hens.com. Uh, they're the only operation there. That's where I volunteered to learn about pasture-raised egg, um, you know, husbandry practices. 
And basically, they're the only operation that I know of that doesn't su supplement with any corn and soy, like whatsoever. And that's what sh typically shoots the omega-6 up very high in relation to omega-3. Um, outside of that, they do I do see pasture-raised eggs a lot more available at the supermarket. So they, they clearly say like pasture-raised in huge bold letters on the carton. You'll typically flip around and on a certain portion of it, you'll see the 108 feet. So that's kind of the gold standard. And it means that pretty much like each head has basically like a 10 by 10 space instead of that one and a half by one and a half space we talked about. Gotcha. So if they have that, that's a good logo to see. Um, basically chicken, it's I, I be, definitely noticed like with the chickens we have, they like to roam around. Like they do not yeah. stay, they don't like to stay in the same spot. They, they go to one area, they hang out there for a while and then they, they've they all of a sudden go to a they don't just go like you know a few feet away or a few yards away mm -hmm. they go like halfway across the yard to a different area and then they, they like zigzag around but every move you know there might might be like a 25 30 yard move from like station to station as they work their way around the property it's uh it, it's interesting to to watch their behavior it's almost like choreographed in a way um and i you know, nobody's telling them what to do. There's something innate. There's an inner wisdom that they have. They know that they're they're trying to get some type of diversity of of food sources or, or something. It's not just to you know enjoy where the sunlight's hitting. I mean, they are searching for stuff very methodically. It's a there's something to learn from that. I think. What about yeah. plants? So I know personally, like we had uh, Saladino, Paul Saladino, on recently. Uh, the carnivore doc and that was very eye-opening and I've definitely explored a lot over the last year or so of reducing plant intake um, which is not easy for me because I, I really like them but mm -hmm. I've learned to be honest with myself when something doesn't serve me well from a health standpoint and I don't know I mean, if you listen to Paul there's a lot of reasons why to understand why plants might not serve some people but in the back of my head, I wonder, and even though I'm buying organic, like, I don't know what that really means, if that really means there's no negative chemicals on it. And I wonder, mm -hmm. like, am I feeling like crap from this because it's a FODMAP or because of the natural plant toxins? Or is it because it's still sprayed with crap that's being, mm -hmm. that we're just unaware of because it hasn't been on the outlawed chemical list yet and it's there's still so many things that are being used, I'm sure, that we, we don't really know how safe they are because, they're, because there haven't been enough sick people yet to file a lawsuit and then to raise awareness about it or something like that. But it doesn't mean that it's not, that it's benign and it's not harmful to us. Like or, organic uh, growing of like plants, they're still using pesticides and herbicides I would assume and I can't imagine all that stuff being just fine for us to be ingesting at least regularly yeah so yeah I agree there's a lot of there's a lot that's going on in that area too really quick just to give people easy solutions for the meat category want two good websites to check out uh, before I forget because I totally spaced out and I mentioned the hard thing to do which is to go volunteer at a lot of these operations right. most people will not do Right. The easy thing to do is for the average person, this will work great for you as well. Uh, AmericanGrassFed.org. 
go to the bottom of the website, click on the interactive map, and you'll find countless, like legit, actually on-site inspected operations and certified operations through a third party, through a party, a third party certification, very credible certification, American Grass Fed Association. They deliver anywhere, you know, like typically you just order before Tuesday and you get the package on Thursday. You know, you, you, you could just order like three weeks worth of meat and not have to go to the grocery store ever again. And then find like, if you're into vegetables, go to like farmfresh2u.com. They just deliver once a week to your door, uh, locally produced, uh, locally produced or vegetables, you know, seasonally produced as well. So you don't even have to go to the grocery store. It's just like slightly like $10, maybe $15 more expensive. But look how much time it's costing you to get in your car, drive to the grocery store, park in the parking lot, get in the, now you have to wear this like stupid mask, get in line and then wait in line. Now check out, now bring your bags to your car. Now, you know, you're just wasting like a lot of time. So personally, like I understand some people just don't have that extra $10 and that's totally understandable. But for most people, they probably have like an extra ten dollars. They could easily spend that and just get the food delivered to them. It's probably like way higher quality than the stuff you're going to find at the supermarket, anyways. And typically, then the farmer also gets all of the revenue as well, instead of having to give the you know the broker the revenue, then the grocery store the revenue, and then you're kind Board of left of directors with like a, and <laughs> yeah, then you're kind of you're doing all the work and you're left with like the smallest cut of the pie, basically. Yeah, that's, uh, so a, that's that, a really good point. If you want to support the people that do the work to provide that high quality food, that's a, a very good point. Yeah, we get a lot of our, I would say the vast majority of our protein sources come, you know, shipped. And the, the one thing that I don't like about it is the boxes and all the styrofoam packaging that it comes in. But I try to buy large amounts at a time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that at least it's like fewer packages. And, you know, if you... If you, it's probably different if you live by yourself or maybe two people, but if you have a family, investing in a, a really high quality freezer that gives you good space is really valuable when you're trying to make it kind of economical. I found that if you're use a company that you're, you know, you find the company that has the highest quality that you're willing to pay for, and then you you try to take advantage on volume purchasing. And I mean, there's some companies that we buy months and months worth of food at a time and they deliver it. They even organize it in the freezer. It's really nice, but um, it's comforting to know that it's there in case there's any disruptions in like food supply chains, which obviously over these last several months, there's an awareness of that. So I, I think that's a, a great investment for a lot of folks if, um, and, if money's an issue, it definitely brings kind of the, the cost per meal down quite a bit if you're willing to commit to, you know, several months worth of, of, of food, at least with the protein side. I don't know if it's quite the same on the plant side. Yeah, so actually, like I went to, um, there are two ways we can kind of break up this topic. And I went to like Sprouts Farmers Market. It's kind of for your listeners, like a higher end kind of organic supermarket where they have like a bunch of organic stuff, but then also a bunch of factory farm stuff as well. It's kind of like a mix and basically like a standardized 2000 calorie diet. So 2000 calorie factory farm diet, 2000 calorie, at least USDA organic certified diet at the supermarket level. 
and I and I and I standardized it for the same amount of macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrates in each one. And basically, the total cost for a two thousand dollar factory farm diet per day is like seventy dollars and seventy seven cents per day. And then for a supermarket level organic diet, it's twelve dollars and like twenty cents per day. So there is like a five dollar difference. And oh, sometimes I you people said seventy. I was like, that no, seventy really dollars. So seventeen compared. What, what were those numbers again? I'm sorry. Uh, for the factory farm diet, it's seven dollars and seventy seven cents. Okay. $7.77. And then for the organic diet, it's $12.20 for 2000 calorie diet. Oh, okay. So, so it's not that big of a difference to begin with. It's $5, but some people would even make a big deal about that. They're like, well, that's five bucks, you know? Uh, so we can break that down into a couple of different ways. So one, the average American spends about like seven to $15,000 a year on non-essential expenses. You know, the, this includes like Netflix subscriptions, having like a, your up-to-date, the most latest smartphone, although you don't own like a huge business and you don't really need like a million of the features that like an executive would need, for example. Uh, alcohol, eating out at fast food with coworkers, uh, all of this adds up to about seven to $15,000 a year of expenses. So the person is spending actually already way more money on living an unhealthy lifestyle. Also the average, Amer the average American, according to Polichek, spends about five to $7,000 a year on medical expenses related to poor lifestyle and nutrition choices. Right. So remember eating a 2000 calorie a day, at least USDA organic certified diet, uh, I forgot the number exactly in my head, but it'll cost you about like 3,700 a year, a year. And it's these same people that say like, I don't, that are spending about seven to 15,000 a year on non-essential expenses and also spending about five to 7,000 a year on medical expenses. Same exact people will tell you they don't have that 3.7 K to spend per year on their organic food, which will eliminate the bulk majority of their med medical expenses. I guarantee it will make them look better. So their, their partner's attracted to them and they just have a better quality of lifestyle in general. And uh, it's, it's, so, so if you really look at the detailed finance chart of the average American, you will see they're, they're wasting that equivalent amount of money on just BS things. And if just those funds could be diverted more consciously, it would be, it would suit their life a lot better and actually add a lot more quality to their life than buying more alcohol or eating fast food with their coworkers or having your latest smartphone, et cetera, et cetera. Another and a bigger vision issue is the fact that the US functions primarily on like a vertically integrated farming system. So this is kind of like a huge corporation type model. And it's basically like, let's say you're a chicken farmer and I'm like Tyson Foods and I come to you and uh, basically I say, well, I would like you to raise, I'm going to drop off these like 20,000 hens and I would like you to raise them to my standards and I'll come pick them up in like eight weeks and then process them and sell them. So I have, I have like the slaughter facilities. I have all the trucks. I have all the veterinarians. I have all the contracts with the grocery stores. I got everything settled, settled out. All you have to do is just raise these hens and you'll get, get a paycheck like every, every month after I pick these, after I pick these hens up from you. So obviously 
like the average farmer isn't doing like too well financially. They're not making like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So this is enticing because it's a steady stream of revenue. Plus it takes a lot of responsibility off of the farmer's hands. But then when the contract is solidified, uh, Tyson Foods would go like, well, Les, um, I want to do, let's do business together. But the problem is, is your facility can't house these 20,000 hens I'm going to drop off like every month. So you need to upgrade your facility and you'll need about $400,000. And I know you don't have that money, but it's okay because I have a contract with a bank. And if you just go to that bank, they'll give you that loan. If uh, basically I'm sending them your way and it doesn't matter with your credit or whatever, they'll just give you that loan. And when the farmer takes on that loan, they're basically indebted to do business with this huge corporation. Because if it doesn't work out, for example, with Tyson Foods, you have maybe two or three other guys in the whole entire country that might hire you. But how it really works is um, usually they kind of play together so that they keep all their contract farmers in line. So if like if I blacklist you as a farmer, like no one else is going to hire you. So now you're stuck with like a tremendous amount of debt and no one's going to hire you. So you're obligated to do like what I tell you. So if I tell you, you need to use these vaccines, you need to do that. If you need to keep your hens indoors, you need to do that. If you need them, need to feed them a non-species specific diet, you need to do that. And you have no say in it whatsoever because I can cancel my contract with you anytime. And you're like super screwed at that point. You have a lot of debt. Have this huge facility and no one's going to buy that volume of chicken from you unless you have all these contracts with the grocery stores which are going to lose anyways the second you lose your contract with me that is so, disturbing so that's that's primarily how the farming system works and if the farmer goes out of business the, it's the bank is totally okay with this because they're going to sell off your property to probably Tyson Foods. And that's how this whole entire consolidation began. So the factory farm model was invented by two American guys in like 1955, John and Don Tyson. And basically there's a good book called The Meat Racket by uh, Christopher Leonard, I believe. And it outlines the step-by-step -step process these guys went through to put pretty much every small farmer out of business in the US and become like the dominant meat packer in the world at one point. Very, very interesting book. It's uh, the farming side of it is just a very background theme. It's more over the level of manipulation and greed that went into developing the factory farm model. Uh, it's, just, just, it's just like a very interesting read. You're kind of flipping the pages and you're like, man, I wonder what kind of scheming things these guys are going to come up with next, you know? Uh, so it's, uh, that's why it's called the meat racket, you know? <laughs> so it's a pretty, pretty, good, pretty good name for it as well. But basically, if they go out of business, the bank is going to sell your property off to Tyson Foods. What they can't collect, they'll simply collect from the taxpayer. So it's like the taxpayer is paying for the operation of a private organization. And then remember, we talked about the grains being subsidized by the taxpayer as well. So you can see how like when you go to the when the average person goes to the grocery store and they're looking for that factory farm meat, you might see it as like three or four dollars cheaper then like, let's just say that USDA organic certified meat, but that three or $4, you've already kind of like paid for through these subsidy programs. You're just kind of not seeing that. It's like, you kind of already prepaid for it. You know what I mean? That's why it's, it's like, you already paid six bucks 
or you already paid two bucks into the $6 purchase. So when you show up to the grocery store, it's four bucks, you know, but you already paid two bucks. You just kind of don't see that. So if you combine all those subsidies with the fact that the average American is spending so much money on these random non-essential expenses, you can see that all of a sudden, like an organic diet is a no brainer. You know, it's a, it's, it's very realistic for most people to do right. most people to do. Um, yeah. I've always so said was, like pay now or pay more later with like health procedures and doctor's visits and like your, if we change the framework for folks where if you looked at your food as just really like an investment and not so much money you spend, but you're really investing in yourself when you decide to put intention and awareness into what you're putting in your mouth. And you know, there's, no, there's no bigger lever we can pull to have such an impact on our health than, than what we eat. I mean, the other things are other categories that add into our health are obviously extremely important, but it's like without a, at least, you know, a, a reasonably healthy diet, the other things don't seem to matter so much. And then on the flip side, there's this synergy that when you eat well, then the exercise you do means so much more and the good night's sleep means so much more. And, you know, everything starts to work to your favor. And then you save that money down the road on uh, procedures. I know the people in my life, like parents and so forth and relatives, like I've seen just so much money spent on trying to fix symptoms. Yeah. And such an unwillingness to invest on the front end on the food. And, uh, you know, people don't think about that when they when they see the difference of like this meal's three dollars more than that meal. Well, if you have that mindset every day, you know, after five or 10 years, it could be a dramatically different, big, a, a much greater difference in your, what your healthcare costs are at that point because of those decisions. Yeah, and even in the short term, I mean, like, it's going to be nice to not, trust me, your quality of life will go up if you're not overweight, just from the appearance aspect alone. I know that's kind of more of like a shallower topic, but it's important too, because if you look your best, you feel a lot better. That's just a given, and your partner's going to enjoy your presence a lot more. It's just, it's just how it's going to be, and your, your hair will look nicer, your, your nails will look nicer, your skin will look nicer as well when you have like a better diet. So it's like those aspects are important to consider to yeah. consider as well and it could be felt almost immediately. You know, you don't have to wait 20 years to develop cancer to learn that lesson. You could enjoy enjoy that uh, enjoy that aspect of yourself like now, you know? Like right. six pack abs, it's like not that tough to get if you really want them, you know? Just yeah. requires a low body fat percentage and a consistent workout routine, you know? Or having like a lean and tone. It's not like deep science or anything difficult to achieve. So, right. And for those that, if you're not used to eating, like let's say we talked a lot about beef today. I mean, if you're not used to eating grass fed beef and then you do, at first, sometimes it, you might not like it as much, but you know, we're such habitual creatures, we, we crave what we're used to. Once you're used to it, you crave it. And the, you know, the factory farm meat just doesn't do anything for you. It, it, it's got kind of a, you really get turned off from the flavor. I mean, I find that as I've, I get excited about like what I'm going to eat each day and what I, what, you know, what did I pull out of the freezer yesterday that 
I'm going to have today, like I think about it and I, there's a sense of gratitude for my ability to access that and to have it. And I'm very engaged with the cooking process and I savor every bite and I feel very connected to it. And the way you feel after you eat a meal like that is so much different than when you eat something that doesn't have all that intention into it. I mean, you, it, you're right. Like the, you could have a benefit in the very short term, you know, even during the actual meal itself. And even though, again, at first the flavor profile is sometimes different and sometimes for some folks, it might take a, you know, a week or two to adjust. But once you've made that adjustment, you, you wind up liking it a lot more. Also, the flavor profile could vary depending on what cattle breed the person is using. So you can try different operations and each one, depending on where they are in the States, will need a different breed to survive in that specific environment. So you might just be eating the wrong breed, which has a different taste to it, you know? So that's just another, that's just another thing to consider as well. Not, there's not only one type of cattle, you know, one type of cattle. There's like many, many different types of breeds. So each one will have a slightly different nutritional profile. Uh, so you just need to maybe then switch it up or try different pieces of the cut. Each piece will have a different taste as well of the animal. Uh, so there's that aspect aspect yeah. to it. But but to go back to the to the vegetables, I know I did like boom quick parallel shift into the politics of the food industry. A good book to read also is like Foodopoly. I've got the author's name, but that's a great one. And basically, uh, she talks about how like when you go to the grocery store, you see a like a myriad of items. But really, all of those items, the bulk majority of them, at least, are produced by like five to or uh, 10 to 12 different companies. So this is like a little that operate under this vertically integrated farming system. So that's a little bit troubling because now you have just a handful of executives, which are probably not that very health conscious themselves, basically telling all of America what they're going to have available to eat. Because most people are just going to go to the grocery store, no matter no matter what you tell them as a health professional. So basically you have then a handful of executives telling what those 99% of people are going to have available to them. Um, so it's not like, it looks like there are a lot of choices, but it's really not that many, not that many choices yeah, when you break it down. Deceiving, but, yeah. but to go into the, to the vegetables. Yeah. There's a lot that's going on there too. Like the, the biggest one that's present in the U S is the U S is the only country that allows hydroponically grown crops to be sold as USDA organic certified. So no other country, at least to my knowledge, allows this to happen. They do allow the sale of hydroponics to be and sold. Hydroponic for the listeners, that's to be grown without soil? Just, so it's just like yeah, water so and nutrients they put in the, in the water? It's basically like a container and they have like an ivy drip where they kind of like, just imagine you're like on a medical bed and they have like these nutrients like a feeding tube and that's basically how the plant is living so for the listeners um the ideal nutritional profile for the plant would be like you know through photosynthesis the plant converts uh basically converts sun energy and carbon and water etc into sugar that it releases through its root system that attracts basically a specific ratio of bacteria to fungi specific to that plant, which then attract like a specific ratio of like all these soil bugs like protozoa, arthropods, earthworms, et cetera, et cetera, that are specific 
in relation and in ratio to that ratio of that bacteria and fungi. Oh, and basically as, as these um, protozoa, arthropods, worms, etc., they die out, you know, the nutrients from their casings or from their fecal matter or whatever, or from their bodies then is reabsorbed by like the fungi or bacteria broken down and then reabsorbed into the nutritional profile of the root. And that's how the, that's how the plant gets its nutrition. And also through like even fungi break down rocks nearby and also animals that die like near the plant get decomposed whatever nutrients they're made up gets actually absorbed into the root profile of the plant and then becomes part of the nutritional profile of the plant. So see, even plants are omnivores. Even plants themselves are not vegetarians. You know? So it's like just to, so even they eat like animals and bugs and all that stuff just to maximize their nutritional profile. And basically hydroponics just eliminates that whole process. They get rid of the soil. And they grow it in like a container, like some liquid container with like an IV drip. And um, so is that a lot of the vegetables that we see? Like if you go into your local, let's say it's a health food store and they're and all their produce is organic. Is that typically grown hydroponically? From my experience, probably the bulk majority of tomatoes, blueberries, uh, bell peppers and lettuce. Uh, is grown hydroponically, even if it's uh, certified organic. Most likely oh, wow. it is. Uh, hmm. Most likely it is. So I guess the one thing, the one thing, I'm not like anti-technology. I really think like if people start colonizing other planets like Mars, I feel like during the first settlements, that's really where hydroponics will thrive, that technology. Because unless I don't see how they're going to grow crops in that area, or even if it would be necessary to grow crops or whatever, I don't know too much of that. So I feel like technologies are good to improve, but I just feel there's just too much deception. It's like, if you're so proud of that technology, why not just label it hydroponically grown and sold it at, sell it that way at the supermarket and let the consumer know that it's grown this way? Like why, sorry. Uh, why, uh, why hide that from the consumer? And they, they hide it and they kind of change these laws. They're like, let us just be USDA organic certified and be sold that way, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important to consider like the earth has gone through 5 billion years of extremely complicated evolution and like five mass extinctions where there used to be a lot of life on earth and then it just like disappeared and then more life reappeared and just disappeared again. Some predict like the human race will cause the sixth mass extinction, you know, and then there'll be like another species a couple billion years later. But basically it gone, it's gone through like a tremendous amount of complicated evolution that even the most competent scientists kind of only have a glimpse of understanding of. And even their theories are constantly changing. So it's gone through that much complicated evolution to allow the soil that exists today to allow the production of the crops that we see today. And basically they're just eliminating that whole entire process with hydroponics. They're like, we know better than like 5 billion years of right. selective evolution. And then also the 12 billion years that required the universe to form, that required the planets to form, that allowed the, the earth to form because of the sun being present, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, pretty well, arrogant when you phrase it that way. We're an arrogant yeah. species. <laughs> Very yeah, they're like, well, we know better and we'll just do it this way. So, so it's on the consumer's end. You know, if you think 
you're okay with that, then just go ahead and buy it. But like my friend Jator Pierre would say, uh, it's best to, with anything health related, it's always best to presume guilty until proven innocent instead of the other way around. Because remember how long, like I said, it took people to prove that smoking was bad. Everyone right. thought like you didn't do any, anything to you. Now it's like so silly to even argue that smoking is good for you, you know? Um, and you're, and we're up against forces. I mean, look at the glyphosate story. I mean, we know it's like so harmful. We know it's used so much, even after they lose like lawsuits kind of, I guess where they've kind of proven the harmfulness of it, you still see it being so it's still on the shelves everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not like that took it down and then we changed our behavior. So there's, um, there's forces that are at play that when you're that when you're trying to make good, healthy choices, you know, it's, it's definitely an uphill battle. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of awareness and you have to be constantly asking questions. Um, well, we, we touched on a lot today. We're coming up on an hour and a half. I want to respect your time, mm-hmm. Eugene. And I feel like I have a lot more questions for you. I know you're, you know, you, you do a lot in the, the exercise realm too. So hopefully we could do this again sometime and you could shed some yeah. light on some of your strategies and the things that you've found success with your clients in that realm. And uh, I think our audience would like to hear that. And that's a little bit of my background too. So cool. I would love to go over some ideas and, and get your take and, um, and provide some, hopefully some more value for the listeners. But we've went on so much today. I feel like I, I need to go to the back to the drawing board of my own meal plan and and uh, you know, see what kind of minor adjustments I could make to kind of turn my so that you know the food that's coming into my family's intestines are aimed in the right direction, I guess. Um, because obviously, if you just go through the motions and you're not aware, not thinking about it, you know, it's, it's like if what do they say? If you don't have a plan, any road will take you. I mean, you're just going to go down where those executives of those big industries want you to go. Mm-hmm. And they don't start their day probably thinking about your well-being. So yeah, it's I really, think it's the investor's well-being. <laughs> yeah, it's really on us to, you know, be an ad, our own advocate and our own best friend and make good decisions for us and for our loved ones. So I, I really want to thank you. If people want to learn more, how do they find you? We're going to link to your book uh, and a couple of these websites that you mentioned in this, uh, the AmericanGrassFed.org and Foodop, Foodopoly. If they want to uh, reach out to you and learn more directly, do they go to your website, TrefkinAthletics.com? Yeah, they could go there or they could just um, Google my name, like Eugene Trufkin and find my Facebook and Instagram and all that, all that random stuff. So, right. Well, Eugene, it's been really great talking to you and I really am grateful that, you know, you've gone through the journey you have so that you could share this gift with, for me and our listeners. I think you have a lot to, to provide for people. So really grateful that you took the time today to chat and hopefully we could do this again sometime. And for the listeners out there, again, I'm grateful for your listening. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you got some useful information out of this that helps you steal, steer your life into a better direction when trying to manage your health and well-being. And I hope you guys stay tuned for more episodes soon. Everybody out there, you guys have a great day. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did. It was great to talk to Eugene. 
I look forward to talking to him in the future about other topics, especially exercise. Uh, following along a little bit with what he's doing online, it seems like he has a lot to share in that category, and that's definitely a passion of mine too. So I would love to hear what he has to say on the topic. So hopefully we'll have him back on the podcast maybe in 2021 and take a deep dive into his mindset in regards to exercise. But as far as today's conversation, it was really eye-opening to me. Um, We brought up some topics that I've kind of been puzzled about and he clarified some issues that I think are of really important value when you're trying to put the right foods on your plate, whether it's for you or your family. So I hope you also got some value out of it and hopefully it helps you make a decision that allows you to take a little bit better control of your health and your sense of well-being. Um, Also, if you're enjoying these podcasts, then please send us a note letting us know and go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review if you could. I think it means a lot to driving this these podcasts to more people that would like them so i appreciate that if you know somebody that you think would benefit from this episode please share it also if you'd like to further um, support the mindful movement sarah and i have recently released a membership program it's very reasonably priced there's still tons of material content that we'll be putting out for free but for a very small monthly fee you can get some additional kind of private content for the community so I do ask for your support if that's right for you if it's outside of your means totally understandable and just keep tuning in to our free content again thanks for joining today I'm grateful for your listening and I hope you stick around for more soon have a great day